The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on Newstalk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. Now, yesterday on the programme, I spoke to the former Taoiseach John Bruton, who actually was in Brussels. And I think it's fair to say we had a robust discussion. But John Bruton's key point was that um, it's not about uh, taking in uh, increasing numbers of refugees, but it is about the integration of them into the countries and communities in which they they then live. Well, we're lucky to have in the studio in Cork the senior lecturer in contemporary Islam at University College Cork, Amanola de Sunday. Amanola de Sunday, welcome to the programme. Thank you for having me. Um, the John Bruton point, integration. How do we integrate and therefore prevent radicalisation? Well, I think, I mean, th- th- there's, a, there's a lot of issues involved in, in what we understand by integration and, and how, how we want people, how we, how we want to welcome people, you know, the people who are who are different into into mainstream society and how you do that is uh, there's many layers to that um, and I think um, the most important part is um, creating a welcoming environment. But I, I had a doctor speak to me yesterday. He rang the programme having listened to the Bruton thing. Uh, 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 a Muslim from originally Jordan, now a doctor in Ireland, married to an Irish girl and so on. You're here, originally Glasgow. Um, but there not there an economic issue here that we are more likely to find the radicalisation from uh, lower working class communities than we are middle class communities? Would that be right? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a study in itself to find out what makes somebody, what drives somebody to, to, to take part in these, in these horrific um, activities. And it could be for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, it could be, it could be young um, men who feel kind of disenfranchised from society. Um, and 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 maybe for economic reasons, maybe they do, they don't have a job, but they, you know, there's there's so much at an individual level. What drives somebody to do to do a horrific event is, is I think um, more at times probably more about psychology than anything else. All right, but but if we look at the respective cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd experience this to cricket of all things, right? That because, for instance, of dietary uh, issues with with Muslims, when when there's tea at cricket or something, they may not partake in the tea because of 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 the foodstuffs that are provided. Also, um, in 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 Western society, Western Christian society, if I can phrase it in that way, like women's tea parties, you know, they say women who lodge this great phrase, because women have a different place in Muslim society. Don't these things make it more difficult, not negatively, but simply make it more difficult for Muslims to integrate? Well, I mean, you, you, you want to, you know, you, you, you want integration. Difference is, is I think, uh, something that you can either embrace or reject. You know, when you're faced with something that's radically different, you can either put up the barriers and throw them out or you can embrace it and, and be challenged by that difference. 
And let us not forget that there is a long history of Muslim-Christian-Jewish relations in all parts of the world where they have coexisted. Jerusalem is a perfect example of that. And we cannot pit Muslims against Christians. This is not, and I think this is falling into kind of a, a political narrative, even at the deepest, uh, you know, religious or theological level. Um, Jews, Christians, and Muslims have coexisted. Jerusalem's a fine example of that. Yeah, but but it, this thing you did, to, where you said we must embrace this rather than put up barriers, but it is a two-way street. The, the, the visitor or migrant to the country must want to integrate, and the, the, in turn, the people of the country or community they are coming to must also want to integrate. You can't have one side want to integrate and the other not. Right, absolutely. But that has been a problem if we, if we look at the USA, for instance, which is a country has long prided itself on, you know, give me your poor, your oppressed, and and all that sort of thing. It has worked. It has been a migrant society. Um, they have had more difficulties with integration with the Muslim community than they might have had with others. Well, I don't think they have. I mean, there is a very, very strong American Muslim. Community okay. communities, um, and at times when when these type of horrific events. Sorry, happen, the reason I asked this question for the purpose of listeners is you've worked at the University of Miami yeah. and therefore a first-hand knowledge of America, and that's why I asked you the question. Yes, unfortunately, the very small minority of people who do horrific acts, they, the you know the the majority ha has to pay for that. Um, Muslims are qu quite well integrated into into Western society, and they have coexisted for a very long time. Um, so we can't really. It, it's. Um, I think it's. It, it's difficult to, to 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 come to a conclusion that that's not the case. Muslims are, I think, largely want to coexist and and want to build bridges. But as you said, it's it's a two way process, which also means that we place the f the finger on ourselves or the mirror on ourselves as Westerners, as white Westerners, in trying to build a bridge with those who who are radically different. And this also means that Muslim communities. And let us make it very clear: Muslims are not a monolith. There are a billion or so Muslims globally in the same way that we look at the nuance and the complexity of Catholic Church and Catholics and Protestants and Christians. We must look at the nuance and the diversity that exists within Muslim societies and not categorize them as one monolithic mass. That is hugely problematic in trying to understand these different communities yeah. as well. I was interested in your point taking Jerusalem as an example of where uh, 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 Islam has coexisted peacefully you know, with the Jewish and Christian traditions. But what we are seeing, and I fully accept that ISIS is not representative of, of, of Islam as its whole billion adherents, but what is happening is now that Christian communities that have existed for a thousand years in many of these areas have been driven out. Driven out of where? In, in Syria and in Lebanon and so on. Right. So, so, uh, and and artifacts which are part of uh, the great world heritage tradition been torn down and so on. There does appear, whether uh, from a minority, and I accept a minority without question, I accept right. a minority. But there seems to be a direct sense that we want to tear down everything that represents pe people who don't agree with us. Right, by a small minority. And what is yeah, also important, that. but I what is also that. important is that you must, that I think we also often become lazy not to hear the voices of those Muslims who are speaking up against the, those small, that those sm small minority 
lunatics, you know, and I now use the term loony as an academic term. There are loonies within every religion mm. in the same way that when I moved to Ireland, if I was to think of Catholics as Irish Catholics and to think about, you know, when I was moving, people said to me, why would you want to move to Ireland? You might get shot. And I thought, surely you cannot generalize in that way. My understanding of Catholics cannot be based on the Crusaders. You know, where, where was it? 60 or 30,000 Jerusalemites were massacred under the order of the Pope. Surely not. And so you wouldn't do that for an entire faith. And that makes it hugely problematic. I hope that we are driven in a way that we want to build bridges because anything else is really not acceptable. We have to give voices to those peaceful Muslims within every community and try to, to move forward in a way that will be helpful to all of us. Now, my guest is Amanullah de Sunday, a senior lecturer in contemporary Islam at the University College Cork, who is certainly making a very strong case on the whole issue of integration, which was the point raised yesterday by former Taoiseach uh, John Bruton. Um, the word war was used yesterday a lot, principally by Francois Hollande and others, that we are now at war. Um, there is no doubt, I think you'll agree, that ultimately if we are at war with ISIS, if we take that as the battle or the war, then the West is going to win because the West has more bombs, more guns, more planes. But the problem is that if you defeat Islam, not Islam, I apologize, if you defeat ISIS in war, what's much harder to defeat, defeat is ideology. Isn't that so? So therefore, as, as Bush proved really by going into Iraq and so on, what he had, instead of finishing a war, he simply created an awful lot of people who don't like the United States. So isn't the ideology, even if we win this war, aren't we creating maybe generations of radicalized or unhappy people? Would you, well, what do I you mean, think about that? All, people will always be unhappy and there will always be a minority who will who who will who will want to do there are a small minority of people who who will want to harm good people uh, we must always focus on those who want to do good and i think that once as soon as we lose sight of that we're actually playing into the hands of those crazy lunatics and i and i think that that we're uh, you know I, I, and at times i i um I, people i, I you, you you might be able to present arguments that are related to state politics which pit, I don't know, the US or the UK against ISIS. What I'm interested in is the individual Muhammad that walks in the street. How do we draw closer to one another? For example, in Cork, you know, as, as I'm here, I think what can we do to build bridges at a, at a local level? And I think that's very, very important to keep our side on. We often lose sight of that when we start producing these grand narratives about the West and, and Islam. Islam is not a thing that walks in the street, let me just tell you that. You know, the, the, you know I, 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 I often say to my students, the, the next time you see Judaism, Christianity or Islam walking in the street, please say hello from me. What you see are individuals in the street and each individual, just as you have Catholics and Protestants, all manifest different ways of living out that religion. Now, some of them might look at a, at, a, at, a, at a way that is ugly, and some of them may look at it in a way that's beautiful and will help us to coexist. We must focus on building bridges and moving forward in that sense. I was interesting, and I must confess I haven't read your book, the Crisis of Islamic Masculinities. Now, I thought that was a really interesting title, so I got to read it as soon as I leave the studio. 
what has masculinity got to do with this Islamic crisis? Well, my, What's uh, your theory? In the book, I, I argue that we've, we've, we've lost sight of all those silenced voices within Muslim uh, societies and within Muslim communities because we often focused on the highly politicized form of Islamic masculinity. And if we were to... To, to, to do a little bit more work, we would be able to, to actually appreciate the diversity that exists within Muslim societies and also within its, its sacred text um, and, and how, how people have reacted against a, a particular, a very rigid form of masculinity. The, the important thing um, in, in faiths is very often the leaders of the faiths. I mean, like your crusaders on the orders of the Pope who killed 60,000 Jerusalemites or uh, the Catholic priests in Limerick who thought they should burn out the Jews all those years ago or whatever. Mm. Um, isn't there an issue, though, and I was interested to hear the security analyst, former security analyst at Sky News, make the point that when, like the Grand Mosque, apparently, in Brussels, um, this was, A, funded by, and the imam was selected by Saudi Arabia. So, therefore, he came from a particular uh, belief structure, if you like. And the, the part of that deal was that the Belgian police wouldn't pay any attention to it, you know, that it was going to be a, uh, a place where nobody goes. Don't we now, as part of this integration also, uh, have to concern ourselves with the role Saudi Arabia plays in all this as a funder or whatever, don't we or not? Well, it depends on, on whether we're, we're again focusing on, on um, if we're trying to understand that Muslim communities are some sort of monolith that are associated with Saudi Arabia. I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced that that is the case. Um, not all Muslims are Arab and not all Arabs are Muslim. And so we have to, I think, look at, look at the diversity within, within the communities. And wherever, wherever I think there is you know, very extreme viewpoints that will not be helpful to coexistence, I think we must all be united in, in speaking up against them. And that is, I think, happening more and more often within Muslim communities who are, who are, who are voicing opposition to this and, and, and calling them out, calling, you know, um, Muslims are, are, are actually um, helping in, in making sure that things move on in a, in a good way. That's an interesting point you make because I think uh, people like me might actually have a sense for no particular reason and almost without evidence, but, but have a sense that Muslims, in fact, don't speak out and don't condemn these mm. kind of atrocities in a major way. Right. But I think uh, when you say in a major way... It's, well, it's, certain mosques, for instance, in Dublin, you right. know, as close as Dublin, would not condemn atrocities. Well, I hope they would. Because, but they don't. Well, that's, 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 a, that's, a, uh, that's problematic. And, 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 and I think that... Um, all the Muslims that I know, um, and I, I am a Muslim, it's, it's something that, that needs to be, be condemned and, and that I think that, that there are a lot of voices out there who, who would condemn um, these acts of, of terror. I mean, just on the country, because it's important to make the country. I visited a mosque in Galway, um, you know, in fact, run by uh, an Irishman who converted to Islam and is now the Islam, is the imam at the mosque in Galway, who was vehemently uh, opposed to any kind of atrocity or that. So, I mean, of course, there are voices. Right. I absolutely agree with that. Um, 
a signed copy of your book would be a great <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Thank it's you. Amanullah the Sunday, Senior Lecturer in Contemporary Islam at the University of College Cork. And you might get your hands. It's called the Carnegie Library here in Cork on, on uh, Grand Parade, The Crisis of Islamic Masculinities. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. Mitsubishi I'm joined now by Robert McGilla Fodrick uh, from Sigma Recruitment. Robert, welcome to the program. Thanks, George. Now, this month's issue of the Garda Review has revealed that three newly trained Garda have already left the force uh, because of low wages. Some people suggesting they'd be better off stacking shelves in... Uh, uh, Tesco. Now, Sigmar is one of the major recruiters in Ireland and internationally. Um, you wouldn't be signing too many people, to be fair, at 23,000, would you? Well, uh, we do in some cases, George, as it goes. Um, and look, uh, I think salaries are typically driven by market conditions. And you have two very, very separate things at play here, George. One, you have an incremental pay scale in the public sector, um, that's largely the focus point of this discussion, um, versus the market conditions around supply and demand of talent in the private sector. So two very, very different opportunities with two quite different uh, motivations at play uh, and two very different trajectories of opportunity beyond the existing entry point for both of the positions you mentioned. All right, well, let's talk about you talking to yeah. somebody about a job, right? The, sure. the public service, one of the key things, it has an incremental pay scale and mm. it has a pension, which is presumably index-linked or, or, or inflation-proofed. How does that play with people who you're talking to an interview because invariably in the private sector neither of those uh, things are part of the package. Do people think about pensions and um, increments seriously when considering a job? Well, the word increment rarely features in our discussions around salary in the private sector um, and they're not two separate things that, 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 that happen at a certain kind of cost to the other. Um, like, like pri the private sector like, doesn't have to, to, to have, like, it doesn't have a negative impact on, 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 on public sector um, salaries. Uh, but really, it comes back to motivation, George. And I think if you look at this particular story and this particular point, I think what's quite evident in my mind is the shift around the world of work and things that are happening around the motivation, particularly for millennials, George. So if you look traditionally at what work is, um, so work, I think a lot of people think of it as a place they go, not a thing they do. And if you look at the purpose of what people do in, in what they do, like the question of why millennials do what they do, not what they do, is, is an increasing topic. So you have a whole matrix and changing uh, world of work with different motivations. And I think the 
that's what we're seeing here in terms of the Garda right. um, salaries. And this is the first real kind of generation of millennials being taken in at bulk. And it's obviously having a bit of a, a, bit of a conflict with the traditional public sector right. scale. Okay, but if, if if you do a kind of uh, quick sum on yeah. twenty three thousand, yeah. you're probably netting three hundred quid a week. Now you're posted to Pierce Street Garda Station, yeah. and you have a paycheck at three hundred quid a week. Now, one thing you do at Sigma Recruitment, obviously, when yeah. people come in from abroad or whatever, you say to them, "Well, this is where you can get an apartment to rent, or this is where you can live, or whatever." 300 quid a week strikes me as you're going to have a problem renting an apartment, going to Tesco's for your groceries and a few other things, aren't you? You are. Um, And look, this is the case for both uh, people in the guards, people in the public sector, and also people in the private sector. And if you just look at that salary and break it down, okay, so the average salary um, for a guard entering um, the force is 23,171, okay? So it breaks down around 12 euros per hour, okay? Um, the, the minimum requirement for a guard is leaving cert. So it's to pass your leaving cert, okay? So if you look and look to link that to, say, the average graduate salary in the private sector, most graduates start off about 27 to 28,000 euros. Now, a guard going in post-leaving cert in the beginning of his third year, based on their incremental scale, will earn 28,000. So the same as a graduate who enters the workforce after studying for three or four years. Now, if you break that down further to, to, to have that impact in terms of the cost of living, there's a living wage initiative. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, George. So this yes. was set up by SIPTU, Unite, uh, the Nevin Economic Research Institute. And they've calculated that €11.50, they advocate a minimum starting wage of €11.50. The likes of Aldi and Lidl have signed up to this. That that will cover the cost of clothing, food, housing, health, education, transport, recreational activities. And that's their push. And this, again, is through a number of independent sources saying that this is what it should be. Um, and, and a guard of salary certainly is low for what they do, in my mind. There's no question of the value uh, that the guards, the guards uh, yeah. uh, deliver for all of them. Okay. There's two things here. When the IT grad comes into you or the economics grad or whatever, he's not going to face some crazed lunatic in uh, O'Connell Street tomorrow night with a knife. Hmm. That's that's one difference. There is a danger element to being a guard, and and it, the rookie is on the beat the same as a tenure veteran. And then yeah. the second thing is we have to if we if we I wonder what your view is that the more you underpay people in those kind of jobs, the more open they are to being suborned by some sort of bribery and corruption. That's a very good point, George. And look, I live in this society. I've got children that I'm raising in this society. I want a guard of force that are motivated and are really driven to, 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 to achieve the purpose of Angarda Sheikhana. Um, and I think motivation is linked to a number of things. Um, there's no question about the security of the job. Come back to your question around an IT graduate versus a guard. 
An IT employer typically will be in a very different position. Typically, they are a profitable company looking for high-performance talent. In this case, the employer is the state. The state are, we know where they are in terms of their, 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 their financial position. And they've obviously made adjustments to cut their cloth according to their measure. Uh, the only real comparison from a, say, a security point of view or a risk point of view, George, it, it, and it's hard because, look, the guards do tremendous work, and there's no question about that. But if you want to look at it from a risk perspective, people who operate or work in the security sector, in the private sector, for example, that, that's probably somewhere to start if you want to have a discussion on this. So if you look at the, the similar type of risk that security uh, guards face, like the average salary for a security guard is around €21,000. Okay, which is substantially less than than the entry point for a guarder. Um, if you look at the trajectory of a career for security guard, the likelihood of their 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 salary rising is possibly up to six seven percent over a ten year period. A guard, on the other hand, based on the incremental pay scale, they will rise. Their salary will rise by sixty to seventy percent over the same period. So it's a very different career trajectory with different opportunities for promotion, with different um, different support mechanisms, and indeed um, pensions and early retirement opportunity for people who are there. I think it's over 30 years or over the year, over age of 55, whatever it might be. So they're very different trajectories, very different opportunities uh, with similar type of risk. Um, so it is very hard to compare a graduate, okay. an IT graduate in the private sector, to a guard. It's also unfair to compare a guard to a security guard in the private sector, but the risk profile for both are probably about similar. All right, but when this uh, hypothetical IT grad comes into Sigmar recruitment um, and you're talking to him, he does have an idea or you tell him pretty quickly uh, what the starting salary is. So he makes a decision, I'm going to work for this company or I'm not. Now, somebody entering Templemore as a trainee guard does Hmm. know what the starting salary is, though, doesn't he? They do. Or she, he or she. He or she does. This is public information. It's in the public domain. It's well published um, in, in, in so many different areas. Um, and they also understand, uh, like, it's well known um, that, that, that a guard of salary, like, is low to begin with. And the motivation and the opportunities are very, very different. So these are informed decisions that guards made. And the reason why this story has, has, has broken, and I think it's been somewhat sensationalized, George, to be very frank, that three people left the job. Like, to be honest, like, people and employers need to allow for a certain level of, of turnover of staff. And if people aren't happy in the job, they should leave. So okay. again, there's two sides to this. It's not just the employer's uh, um, uh, responsibility to retain people, so i.e. the guards retain the, 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 the guard or recruits. But if people aren't happy, and some, sometimes you need to experience the job itself before you fully understand and appreciate um, what it offers or what it doesn't okay. offer, and people need to leave if they're unhappy. Um, so again, no one's forcing people to stay in jobs who are unhappy in George. All right, thank you so much for joining me, Robert McGill of of uh, Sigma Recruitment. Uh, Angela says, how many security guards have been killed on duty? 23K is ridiculous for a guard and the job they do. However, Michael Intrilli is a newly qualified doctor. He's on 15.50 an hour after five uh, years at 
uh, college, Mark says, disgraceful salary for a guard. Half of what it should be. Take it from the senators and TD salaries. Well, Mark, I want to tell you one thing. If you have the salary of TDs and uh, senators, don't be complaining about the quality of TDs and senators you get. Uh, to be honest... Uh, I'd increase TD salaries uh, and uh, attempt to recruit uh, far better people. And then we wouldn't be complaining maybe about the quality of people we get. Uh, my thanks to all of you and particularly all you nurses uh, who said that graduate nurses would be better off at the checkout in Penny. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, the acting heritage minister, Heather Humphreys, uh, has refused to rule out an appeal on Moore Street uh, because, of course, the High Court had said that uh, it is to be regarded now as a battlefield site. This is what she had to say. I'm still considering the judgment. Uh, it, it runs to almost 400 pages and uh, it, its uh, implications. Uh, so uh, I have to give it due consideration. I'm joined now by independent TD for Dublin Central, Maureen O'Sullivan, who, of course, was very much part of the action group in trying to preserve the area as a battlefield site. Deputy O'Sullivan, welcome to the programme and congratulations on your Houdini-like escape in the election. Indeed. Um, Somebody said to me if I was a racehorse, they'd call me um, late starter but great finisher. (laughs) Now, this battlefield side, I was just listening to the minister there. Mm -hmm. All she's doing is considering it. Mm -hmm. She has to read the judgment. Yes, yeah. And I sincerely hope that's all she does, is just read the judgment and consider it, because it was a memorable judgment. And it really vindicated what the relatives have been saying, what the Save Moore Street Committee have been saying, and what those of us in the Doyle and the Shannon who have taken up the cause have been saying. And it was really interesting that the judge also found, as I think you did and anybody else who has walked the battlefield site with the relatives from the GPO right around to the Rotunda, we know that something significant, historical happened at so many places along that route, not just in 14 to 17. Well, there are a couple of things, really. Mm-hmm. I think what really brings it to life also, mm-hmm. uh, and I intend bringing my grandchildren there, mm-hmm. is the tremendous uh, exhibition at the Ambassador Cinema, which actually mm-hmm. shows you how they tunneled through to Moore mm-hmm. Street and so on. And then, of course, the O'Reilly uh, was killed, yes. wasn't he, yes. leading a charge down Moore yeah. Street. So yeah. I would have thought yeah. this is vitally important to us. Absol- absolutely. And, I mean, I was delighted the judge actually referred to uh, the incident with the O'Rahilly. And I mean, it is, it's extremely poignant. And, you know, we know the plans for Moore Street if, um, if the minister appeals this. And it's, I think it's so ironic that a minister for arts and heritage who is responsible for our national monuments would appeal a decision which is really on behalf of the developer who wants to demolish everything except 14 to 17 and build a shopping centre. Yeah, I mean, the minister seems to be on the side of uh, uh, the money rather than Mm -hmm. the tradition. The the thing about the tradition also is, though, uh, 
I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd mm-hmm. on these historical matters, but mm-hmm. I mean, the British have even preserved a bit of 1066 for crying mm-hmm. out loud. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the Americans have done a great job at mm-hmm. Gettysburg. Now, yes. the point made by the National Museum directors to mm-hmm. the court was, look, it's not like a battlefield, like there was a cavalry charge yes. or trenches yeah. or something, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make it any less of a battlefield site. Exactly. And because, I mean, there were so many things that happened along that street, some of which involved civilians. And there are so many stories at each point that it deserves a much more fitting um, restoration and preservation. And one of my other aspects on Moore Street is that we have an opportunity, um, you know, to have a different vision for the street, much more appropriate, and bring back people to live in the street, which is what Moore Street was about. It was also a pre-famine street. Um, and there are other significant aspects to it from the 18th and 19th centuries. So the relatives and the groups have been calling for an independent survey um, inspection of the area. And, you know, it would have been a terrible travesty if those works had gone ahead. And the concerns were that it wasn't about preservation, that there were aspects of demolition um, that, that happened. And that's what led to the occupation. But there is an important point, mm-hmm. surely. I mean, you know, if you talk about uh, filthy commerce, uh, you know, mm-hmm. but we must have commerce yeah. because yeah. we must have jobs and all mm-hmm. these kind of good economic yeah. things. Yeah. A properly a properly cared for, developed mm-hmm. Moor Street would also be a huge tourism attraction would, and therefore and, generate yeah. money as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we see, you see at the moment the number of tourists who are availing of the various 19th 16 tourists that are on offer. Um, I think one of the traders recently was saying that one of the days recently, probably over the St. Patrick's uh, days, that there were some 800 extra people who came down Moore Street because they wanted to see what had happened there during the Rising. So there is massive potential if we had a real walkway preservation of the street. It, it would be econo- it makes economic sense as well. Well, it, it, a lot of people uh, don't necessarily agree with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a kip, says Mike. It should be mm-hmm. torn down. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, Roshi makes the point we've succeeded in preserving New Grange. Yes, of course we mm-hmm. have. But New Grange is just one item. We're like, yes. We have to preserve. We've been very lax as a country, have we not, in Absolutely. preserving any kind of tradition. Yes, and I mean, the whole point about Moore Street is that there seem to have been deliberate allowing of even the 14 to 17 and the whole area to fall into dereliction. And that's, that's what it appeared to be, to bring it down to a certain level and then therefore, oh, well, we'd have to knock it off because there's nothing there worth preserving. And that has been the situation over quite a number of generations. And I suppose in fairness, at least this government did try to do something with 14 to 17. It's just a pity that they didn't extend it and take on board all the other events that happened outside of 14 to 17. All right. Uh, what's the position of forming a government? Where do you stand? <laughs> well, as I said after the election, <clears throat> I'm prepared to listen to anybody who wants to talk to me. And that's what I'm doing. And I will go to the meeting tomorrow and it will be to listen to what is being what's being considered. What are the policies? You know, what are the issues that are driving these talks? I'm not committed to anything. I'm just going to listen. Are you a part of a group or are you independent, independent? I'm independent, independent, um, becoming an endangered species now, I think, with all the groupings. Yeah, would you have any mm-hmm. red line issues yourself, do you think, if well, you went to a meeting? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, 
you know, having been in the Doyle for over six and a half years now, and the various issues that I've spoken on, and um, whether that has to do with health or housing or addiction or tax justice or equality proofing of budgets, etc. I think anybody who has listened to that or knows that would know where I'm coming from. Um, so there wouldn't be any surprises in what I would be considering. But I want to see what the proposed government are suggesting. Well, I mean, you did pick up a torch, uh, mm-hmm. the, the late Tony Gregory mm-hmm. torch, and yeah. that torch mm-hmm. was very much about the kind of things you mm-hmm. discussed. So mm-hmm. you would be faithful, really, to the remit mm-hmm. to continue to talk about those, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we go back to 1982, and I know Tony was in a very different position because it was just one person who was needed. But he certainly had discussions with both Fianna Fáil and with Fine Gael and Labour. Um, so he wasn't ruling anything out at a certain point and then he weighed up what was on the table what was being considered, what were the policies and then he made the decision but it's a different situation now, there's too many you know, there are so many of us but we'll see what happens tomorrow There was one question I should have Mm -hmm. asked and didn't in relation to Moore Street Mm -hmm. Battlefield site Mm -hmm. Do you have to go back to the High Court or would that only be in the case of an appeal or what? Well I I actually heard what the Minister said today that they're back in court on some date um, later on Um, I had thought it was finished um, so I'm not too sure of the significance of that but if there is an appeal I think that is to the Supreme Court Yes, yeah it doesn't make sense that the minister is going to bring on extra costs on a country that, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to suit the developer who has cost this country so much to date. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Independent TD, Dublin Central, Maureen O'Sullivan. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, it's now 70 years since George Orwell wrote his 11-point essay, A Nice Cup of Tea. So I couldn't resist dropping in to the fabulous Nash 19 restaurant on Princess Street here in Cork to see how they do it. Here's how I got on. Well, in 1946, George Orwell, who wrote the famous book 1984, in an essay, he wrote of the 11 key steps in making the perfect cup of tea. We're in Cork, of course, so where else would you go for the perfect cup of tea except Nash 19 in Princess Street, the iconic restaurant in Cork City, where all the top politicians, bankers and movers and shakers assemble at lunchtime to plot the future for the southern capital. Well, I'm joined by uh, the uh, Major D founder and owner, Claire Nash. Claire, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Now, not only am I the world's leading expert in coffee, I'm also the world's leading expert in tea. And it's interesting why I'm an expert in tea. Because my mother taught me how to make tea, a good cork woman. You'd have strong views about making tea as well, would you? I would too. I think tea is very important to us. As you say, a good cork woman, um, tea has been something that will be drunk over good times, bad times, and it seems to resolve everything. She will have a cup of tea. But the, the importance of how the cup of tea is made is absolutely vital. And I think I'd have to agree, there's plenty of steps, a good 11 steps anyway, 
to get the perfect cup of tea. Yeah, you see, one of the things that has happened, I think, and why my mother knew how to make tea, and maybe my wife doesn't, is we only drank tea in the 1950s, mm -hmm. whereas now there's a huge amount of coffee drunk, so kind of the traditional tea drinking has maybe gone out. But let's talk about some things Orwell sees. The first thing that he considers very important, of course, is heat the pot. Absolutely vital. I think first thing is the water has to be boiling. I don't even think it's good enough to just heat the pot with average temperature water. I remember years ago my father would say put on the kettle and once I ran out and let it run, let the tap run hot, everybody knew instantly the tea was shocking. So you need boiling water to scald the pot as we say. And you need it near the tea, it has to be, the pot yes, has to sorry, be scalded. Claire. What Orwell says is mm -hmm. you bring the pot to the, to the kettle, kettle, not yeah. the kettle to yeah. the pot. I'd have to agree because you have to have your pot absolutely scalded. You dump it out and then you start again. You up, up the temperature of the water, put in your tea bags or your tea leaves, depending on which you prefer and what you use. And yeah, leaves versus bags. Now, my mother wouldn't have used a bag yes. under pain of mortal sin. You see, she probably didn't because in those days you didn't have bags, George. But by, by the time we'd finished clogging up our drains here with tea leaves, we use the finest of tea bags. They're the minister's tea, as we call it, Barry's tea. And that's what we use. We use double tea bag in our tea for one. Good, strong tea. Yes, now that's another point Orwell makes, right? Interestingly, he's not a fan of the tea strainer. He thinks when oh. you pour, if a few leaves come, because you've let it settle, mm -hmm. he's a mm -hmm. firm believer in mm -hmm. letting it settle. If a few leaves come out, then so be it, he says. But vital the tea is strong, he says. Anybody who drinks tea that isn't strong isn't a tea drinker. <laughs> Possibly. And, you know, as you said, there's tea, there's coffee, and both of them are competing. And what's even more so is the herbal teas now, George. And sure, they're drinking them at every sort of strength. But I think if we go back to the real tea that we drink, that we love, we call it breakfast tea. We always drink it at night as well. I think there's nothing like a good, strong cup of tea. And some people love to pour the milk in first. Nobody <laughs> likes to pour the milk in first. My mother's a Only northerner a and she loves Philistine it. No, would do you know why, George? Do you know why? Because why? years ago, they served the tea in beautiful china cups. Yeah. And if the tea was at 100 degrees, which it should be, it could actually crack the tea cup. Well, now I'm so relying on my mother here. Tiddle of milk. All right. I'm relying on my mother mm -hmm. rather than George Orwell, mm -hmm. although George and my mother are, are fellow travellers where tea is concerned. If you put the milk into a cup that's yes. already should be warm, yes. uh, you cool down the cup immediately. But it probably wasn't already warm. It's warm in restaurants, but they wouldn't be warm out of your china press. So that's what they would have done. Oh, They'd be right, cooling. Right. Right. So, you know, it is tradition versus the restaurant tea now, I suppose. Right. And well, definitely, milk in afterwards, you can put in then as much or as little as Well, that's as you Orwell's like. point, you see. If you put the tea in and you're stirring it, then you can get the correct consistency mm -hmm. of milk. Mm -hmm. Never cream, never. he says. No, no, never. It just doesn't make, it makes it kind of um, cloy, I yeah. think. You know, yeah. it nearly splits, like cream would nearly split at the top of tea. Now, um, the other thing, my mother, Orwell, and myself, our Aunt Adam, only pussycats put sugar in their tea. <laughs> George, only pussycats. Do you know who else actually likes sugar or should have sugar in tea if you had a little accident 
or you had a bit of an upset, they'd always have the cup of sweet tea. And funnily, my father used to give it to dogs if they'd had a bad not fight. Not pussycats. <laughs> pussycats. <laughs> <laughs> give it to dogs with a no bit of trauma. Sugar. Or, or, um, no sugar. No. Now, I am also one step removed from my mother. I don't take milk either. You don't either. What's the reason for that? I don't know. I'll tell you my reason, and the Ursula Convent Thurlis won't like to hear it, but the nuns didn't pasteurise the milk. Now, I'm from a dairy um, manager, creamy manager's um, daughter, and we would have had the cream off the top of the milk for the porridge. We'd love that, but the nuns would leave it sitting for hours. I couldn't have milk after that, George. I oh. rarely drink milk. Yeah, the, 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 the thing about uh, the stirring of the pot, like you, you bring the pot, you put the tea leaves in. You mm-hmm. put, now, the infusion is the word. Mm-hmm. You must have boiling water hitting the tea leaves to create it. And then uh, you give it a good stir, let it settle, and then pour. But the minister's tea, which we're drinking here, Barry's tea, Minister Barry, um, there is another thing Orwell says. It must be from India, or if not India, what he then calls Ceylon, which is modern-day Sri Lanka. It's got to be Ceylonese or Indian tea. None of this uh, Zimbabwe tea or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, fair enough. I know that um, Peter Barry's children would be very pernickety about that, and they'll travel and buy from the buy from those Indian tea makers or tea harvesters. And certainly it's good old-fashioned Indian tea we have. Yeah, well, of course, the minister's daughter is in the Shannon now, isn't she? Deirdre Clune. She she actually was in Brussels yesterday morning. Was she? She was. Um, I followed her on Twitter yesterday, and she was having... She was keeping us steadily informed that things were okay, you know, they were bad, all right, but that everybody over there was safe in the European... Okay, so if you want to make tea, um, you can follow the... Late Annie Hook's uh, principles, which have been followed religiously by Claire Nash in Nash 19. And uh, when all the movers and shakers come in here, they get the tea the way it was supposed to be made in Cork. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, my next guest uh, helped to create Donald Trump, the politician. Now he's not so sure he did the right thing. I'd like to welcome to the program Christopher Barron, a columnist with The Guardian and himself, a conservative political strategist in America. Christopher, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Does that express your view? Uh, absolutely. It, it certainly does uh, express my view. I, I certainly uh, I, I didn't know. Uh, I certainly didn't know then that this is where we would end up now with a Donald Trump campaign. Why is that? Um, I saw just recently, and you may well have seen it, sort of doing the rounds on YouTube of an interview with Trump by Oprah Winfrey about 25 years ago. Um, the main difference seemed to be he was slimmer and had a better haircut. But a lot of a lot of the views he was expressing, perhaps not as xenophobic or not as sort of extreme, but nevertheless, he he was he was very much America first type of politician. 
Yeah, and, and it's not so much the America first part that has gotten me disturbed. It's the fact that often Trump takes a kind of logical position to its illogical you know, extremes. Uh, you know, I mean, Trump was talking about border security five years ago when, when, when I helped him get his political start. And I think that makes complete and total sense. It obviously makes sense that if we're going to be a country, we have to have borders. And it makes sense that we have to have secure borders. But, you know, Trump hasn't ended with that. You know, it's, it's talking about we're going to build up a fence and we're going to get Mexico to pay for it. Well, that, that's ridiculous. We're not going to build a fence and a wall and have Mexico pay for it. And he knows that. And, and reasonable people know that. And in the same way that you know, Trump talking about the problem that we have with Islamic extremism, everybody understands that. Uh, but the answer is not to say that we're going to bar all Muslims from entry into the United States. Again, it's taking a, a problem, a logical position to an illogical extreme. And I think that he has, has done this over and over and over and over again. And frankly, I think his, his conduct uh, has been you know, detrimental to the entire political process. But uh, Richard Nixon, um, I, I remember reading a book, and Nixon said, during the primaries, you move as far right as you possibly can in your rhetoric. And then in the election proper, you spend the rest of the time trying to get back to the center. Isn't that a possibility that Trump may actually do, that he's going to win the nomination on the basis of, of being, like Nixon's view, as far right as he can possibly get? And then in the election campaign against one of the most disliked politicians in America, Hillary Clinton, he moves back towards the center and becomes an alternative. Right, and I, I have no doubt that he plans on doing that. And look, at the end of the day, and I said this in my piece for The Guardian, that, that you know, Donald Trump is a good businessman. And so he's selling voters what they want to buy. Um, and I have no, no doubt that when he gets to a general election with Hillary Clinton, he's going to be selling a different bill of goods. He's going to be emphasizing different issues. I think we'll see a different type of Donald Trump uh, in the general election than we're seeing right now. But at the end of the day, I think being, uh, being president of the United States, being the leader of a of a country is more than just selling people what they want to hear. Uh, it's oftentimes selling us what we what we don't want to hear, but what we need to hear. And I think that's one of the places that I think Donald Trump has fallen down dramatically here. I think he's doing a great job of kind of telling people what they want to hear and getting people excited. But at the end of the day, he's not really telling people they, what they want to hear, that we need to make really tough decisions when it comes to, you know, what we're doing in this country, particularly when it comes to, to spend taxing and spending. And, and I, I, I just don't see enough of that out of Donald Trump. I actually thought politics was about telling people what they wanted to hear. I thought that was what politics was all about. Like, if you go back to, to FDR, Roosevelt, I mean, Roosevelt didn't tell the Americans he planned to pull America into World War II. You know, but, he, but that's what essentially he was trying to get to with uh, Harry Hopkins and uh, Churchill and, and, and uh, Pearl Harbor might have pushed him into it, but he was going there eventually. That was his plan. Um, you know, nobody, no, I don't know, not, this isn't American politicians. This is politicians the world over. Nikita Khrushchev said politicians will promise to build a bridge even where there isn't a river. I mean, isn't Trump just, he's a bit more extreme, but he's your typical politician. He tells you what you want to hear. And that's the problem. And that's part of what, what I wanted out of a Trump uh, you know, candidacy was not your normal politician. I thought Donald Trump's successful 
businessmen wouldn't be a captive to, to, to special interests and would play by his own rules. And part of that, I thought, meant like, that he didn't have to be your average politician, that he didn't have to just tell people what they wanted to hear. I thought Trump had an opportunity in running for president, in running in a, in a different way. Because look, the guy has got unbelievable natural political skill and charisma. Very few politicians in the modern era have been able to manipulate the media the way that Donald Trump has. Yeah. He's an absolute master at it. I, I just think you're a nice guy, Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> and nice guys always finish last in politics. <laughs> yeah, you're just a nice guy. But look at it this way. And my guest, by the way, is Christopher Barron, columnist with The Guardian, but for the purposes of our argument, conservative strategist politically in America who gave uh, Donald Trump his, his first break, really, in politics. You say that you thought that Trump, when you first saw him make a speech, um, you thought he could be the next Ronald Reagan. What's Ronald Reagan? For America, for Irish people listening here, like, what's Ronald Reagan? Ronald, I mean, Ronald Reagan is the he's the godfather of the modern Republican Party of the modern conservative movement. And I, you know, look, and Ronald Reagan was somebody who came from a background in Hollywood and somebody who had been a Democrat and had held liberal positions before. And I thought Trump could be out of the same mold, you know, a, a somebody who comes from the businessman slash reality TV part of the world, somebody who's had more liberal positions in the past, but somebody who could also kind of bring in, you know independents and disaffected Democrats, while at the same time keeping the conservative base of the Republican Party happy. That, that's what Reagan did. That was, the, that was the magic of Reagan. That's why Reagan won you know, in a 49-state landslide. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Trump hasn't, uh, hasn't been able to do that. He hasn't united the Republican Party. He's divided it more bitterly than I've ever seen in my entire life. But I, I'm not a betting man, but I would suspect when when Trump put through his hat in the ring on this Republican nomination thing, he was a rank outsider, you know? He certainly wasn't going to win the Kentucky Derby in political terms. And now he's within touching distance of winning the nomination and has a 50-50 chance of being president because it will be a two-horse race at that point. Now, whatever he's done... Whatever it might mean to you and me and maybe a huge cohort of the American people, he's he's in this he's in he's in the lead heading at the tape. There's no doubt about it. Look, I, there, without a doubt, I believe that Donald Trump, whether I like it or not, is going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. At the end of the day, it's, it's about winning primaries and collecting delegates, and Donald Trump has done a much better job than any of his opponents. We, you know, we started this race with 17 men and women running for president. We're down to three, and essentially only one of them actually has a, le a legitimate path to 1,237 delegates, and that's Donald Trump. And you're right. In a general election with Hillary Clinton, one of the most unpopular figures in American politics, yet Donald Trump has probably a 50-50 shot of being the next president of the United States. But the other thing, Christopher, um, when you walk into the White House, I've actually done it um, as, a, as a pure tourist, um, but when you walk in there, if you walk into the Vatican or, or, or things like that, when you walk in there, something happens. There's an ambience or something, and, and you think, you know, 
this is different. Now, doesn't it have a civilized, doesn't the White House, for want of a better word, have a civilizing effect on the inhabitant? I, I certainly hope so. I mean, at the end of the day, I hope so. I hope that at some point Donald Trump realizes that he's running for president of the United States, that he's running to be the leader of the free world. And, and I hope that the, the, the greatness of that office, um, that he'll start taking it more seriously. Because, look, at the end of the day, this is an incredibly smart and talented man. This, he doesn't have to run this kind of sideshow campaign. You know, I, I said in my piece in The Guardian, like, I expected Trump, as a good businessman, would recognize first and foremost what he didn't understand and surround himself with the best and the brightest. And he hasn't done this. At, at some point, I hope he does. At some point, I hope he starts taking this seriously and understands that he may be the next president of the United States. But, but John F. Kennedy, I remember, surrounded himself, difficult for you as a Republican, but John F. Kennedy surrounded himself with the best and brightest, and then he finished up with the Bay of Pigs. Um, you know, George McGovern was a, was a 24-carat war hero, and he was wiped out in uh, a presidential election. Election. Like um, Lyndon Johnson brought in a guy who sold more Ford motor cars than Henry Ford, but, but he, he still made a complete Horlicks of Vietnam. So, like, this doesn't necessarily follow through that you're smart or you're a businessman or you're all these kind of things and, and that suddenly you're a great president. No, it, 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 it doesn't. It, it absolutely does not. Um, but, you know, look, in all likelihood, either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump is going to be the next president of the United States. Um, and so, you know, my prayers are that whoever is the inhabitant of that White House uh, finds themselves up to doing the job. Okay. And part of that is surrounding yourself with the best and brightest. Okay. That's not always a guarantee that it's going to be successful, uh, but it does give you a better shot than not. Before you go, you go if Trump gets the nomination, you as a good Republican, you'll, you'll give him a vote, won't you? I don't know what I'll do. Ah, oh, Christopher, you of little faith. <laughs> you know, you know, John the Apostle, he said, if I, until I put my fingers in the wounds, I will not believe. So, no, it was Thomas. Maybe you're just a doubting Thomas at this point, Christopher. Or, or, or the eternal optimist, one of the two. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. That was Christopher Byrne, and you can read his columns in The Guardian. And, of course, as you heard, he gave Donald Trump his first start because Christopher is a conservative political strategist in America. Your thoughts to 53106 by text. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But, of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.